Our message this morning is titled, Jesus, Our Reigning King. And the main text is from Psalm 2. So this is an incredibly uh, rich passage. It, it, It branches out into all kinds of interesting theological directions. But ultimately, this morning, I would like to focus in on one aspect that is highlighted for us there, and that is hope. Hope. So increasingly, as we look at the state of our world today, we find that hope is in short supply. Lawlessness seems to be on the increase. Uh, There's the rising threat of extremist Islam that's no longer just confined to the Middle East, but in Europe, in America, even right next door to us. We've got prominent uh, American politicians telling us that we only have 12 years left to save the planet from climate change. And the bad news is that was three years ago, so we only have nine. Russia and China are becoming more and more provocative in what looks like a quest to re-establish their empires from a long time ago. The world is tolerant of all views except the Christian view. Persecution of Christians is on the increase. Evil men and women seem to be prospering. We've got new strains of COVID-19 popping up all over the world, which is causing a lot of fear and uncertainty. And global forces look to be conspiring toward new forms of totalitarianism and the restricting of our freedoms. Now, these are just a few examples. I could list many more. But in response to the state of the world and um, to this increasing feeling of hopelessness, people have come to various conclusions. They would say, well, God has done all he's going to do. It's now up to humanity to turn this world around. Okay? We have to now take over the world by conquering culture, by conquering education, by conquering the arts, etc., Others will say, no, God has turned his back on the world because of our wickedness and our sin. It's not that man has become more sinful, but technology and other advancements have helped us to invent new ways of doing evil. And it's helped us to have more leisure time in order to pursue sinful interests. Some people say, well, God really doesn't want evil things to happen to us, but there's not much he can do to stop it because he doesn't want to impede human free will. In other words, as one person put it, God is a lot like my mom. My mom doesn't want bad things to happen to me, but there's not much she can do to stop them from happening. So if you ever read the book, The Shack, that's the view of God that's portrayed there. Lastly, others will say, well, this is the way that it must be before Jesus comes back. The world must fall apart. The church, in essence, will fail to complete the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. As I said, the perceived truthfulness of these factors leads us to great hopelessness and to even despair. More and more people are being diagnosed with depression because they just can't see a light at the end of this tunnel. How can I find fulfillment and happiness in this world? What future is there for my children or for my grandchildren? Does God see what is happening in the world? Where will our hope come from? Most gracious God, we thank you for meeting us here this morning, 
and for giving us your word. As we open the scriptures, our prayer is that of young Samuel. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Refresh us, we pray. Strengthen us, convict us, shape us, give us hope. Hope anchored in Jesus Christ, our ruling and reigning King. To the glory of God alone we pray. Amen. So let us read Psalm 2 this morning. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear off their bonds and cast away their ropes from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his burning anger. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will declare the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. This day have I begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You will break them with the scepter of iron. You will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now then, you kings, be wise. Be admonished, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Tremble with trepidation. Kiss the sun, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath kindles in a flash. Blessed are all who seek refuge in him. So, as you might be aware, the Psalms, it's a collection of poems and, and songs that are written by different Old Testament authors. We get the English name, Psalms, from the Greek, psalmos, uh, which is the word for song. Now, the ESV Study Bible uh, summarizes the book of Psalms as follows. It says, the Psalms are the hymn book of the people of God at worship. The Psalms take the themes of the Old Testament theology and they turn them into song. I like that. It's a good uh, summary of what the book of Psalms is. But this, these uh, poems or songs or Psalms are written in a very specific way. Many times you hear people say, well, it feels like when I read the Bible, I get a lot of head knowledge, but I struggle to make it heart knowledge. But the Psalms are almost the, the opposite way around. They intentionally use strong and emotive language that hits you in your heart and then the knowledge move, moves up to your head, works its way up. It's also the book of the Old Testament that is most quoted in the New Testament. So if we turn our attention this morning to Psalm 2, it's uh, interesting to look at some of the headings that were provided by different Bible versions. Now these are not inspired, of course, but they do give us an indication of what we are about to read. Some would say, it's the reign of the Lord's anointed. Others, the coronation of the messianic king, or the coronation of the son, or the Messiah's triumph and kingdom. Okay? In other words, that's a good place to put spoiler alert, <laughs> if you don't want to know what the psalm is going to be about. But even though the author of the psalm is not mentioned here, it's, uh, we're told in Acts 4, verse 25, that he is King David. 
And there are many different psalms, uh, but the ones dealing with kingship we call royal psalms. So in the first instance, this psalm is about God's promise to David that there will always be one of his descendants who rules over his kingdom. God himself has established the Davidic kingship. We read about that in 2 Samuel 7. Let's just look at verse 16. The Lord says to David, Your house and dominion will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established by the Lord forever. But in Psalm 110, which is the passage in the New Testament that is most often quoted from the Old Testament, David prophetically looks ahead and he sees that one of his descendants will be even greater than he is because he calls him Lord. This is the promised Messiah, the one who the commentators call Great David's Greater Son. Well, who is this promised Messiah? It's Jesus Christ. This is what Christ means. It means Jesus the Anointed, Jesus the Messiah. We read this about Jesus in Luke 1, verse 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So because this promised kingdom eventually uh, encompasses the entire world, Psalm 2 goes beyond David and, in, and um, goes beyond his successors and can only be fulfilled in the Messianic King, Jesus. So then Psalm 2 is not just a royal psalm, it's also a Messianic psalm because it clearly refers and points to Jesus. So now that we have this knowledge, let's quickly walk through the passage again so we can establish the context before we look at the implications of what this passage means for us this morning. I've given you a little outline there in your, um, in your bulletins. You can follow along there. First, we see sinful people, the kings of the nations, rebel. Now, in David's time, these would have been Gentile uh, kingdoms that were vassals of Israel or have been conquered by Israel. But really, in terms of Jesus Christ, that's all rebellious and sinful people. It's interesting that it says there that let us throw away their bonds from us. So in some way, these people are aware that they are being bound. They are aware that their power is limited. And they're saying, let us tear off their bonds and cast their ropes away from us. We see that their scheming and their plotting is to no avail. It says, why do the people's plot in vain? Okay, why do the people plot to no avail? It's useless. They plot against God and against the Davidic king in the first instance and against Jesus the Messiah. Now, God's anointed in this passage can refer to many things. It can refer to uh, anybody who's been consecrated, so a king or a priest or a prophet. But in this case, God's ultimate anointed is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And uh, in Acts 4, 27 uh, he's ultimately identified as Jesus. Now, how striking then uh, was the crowd's words before Jesus was crucified when Pilate said, here is your king, and they said, we have no king but Caesar. And how does God respond to this rebellion? Well, firstly, in mocking laughter. 
Secondly, by responding in anger and terrifying them with his fury. The Lord says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, Mount Zion was where the temple was located, and so the idea was that the king's throne was very, very closely linked with the temple. But they could never be one. You could never be a priest and a king. You could only be one or the other. But Jesus the Messiah is both the high priest and king, and he is the one who brings together the temple and the throne of David in, in a way that David himself never could. Well, then the king recalls God's promises to him. He says that the Lord said to me, You are my son. This day I have begotten you. Now, this idea of being begotten is not of uh, the act of creation or of childbirth, but rather it's a declaration that God makes. Um, as we see in Romans 1 verse 4, it says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Okay, so it's a de declarative act. You are my son. The nations will be his inheritance and his possession. So the language that is used here is meant to convey that it's a guarantee. Okay, it's an, this inheritance is something that is waiting. It's not something that could or could not happen or come to pass. It will, he will receive it. Now to David, these were the nations that he would conquer and he would rule in his lifetime. But to Jesus, this inheritance is a people, not just the nations surrounding Israel, but all the nations of the world. Verse 9 says that um, he will break them and he will dash them to pieces. In other words, the, his rule will be uncontested. Now, David's rule was contested. His own son rebelled against him. His kingdom, uh, long after his death, fell to the Babylonians. But his line endured. His descendants endured, as Pastor Clive preached a few weeks ago when he looked at the genealogy of Jesus. The king will rule with a scepter of iron. Now the scepter was the king's symbol of rule and authority. So the fact that it's made of iron shows that it's, it's about strength. This is not just an ornament. It's not just something he, he holds to look nice and important. It's used for uh, both offensive and defensive action. Then from verse 10 on we see that the king gives advice to the kings of the nations. He says, apply wisdom. Think about what you're doing. Think about who you are rebelling against. Then submit to the Lord, verse 11. And verse 12, submit to the Davidic king, which is what it means when it says, kiss the son. This is the idea that you show homage, that you show honor to the king. But if it's uh, Jesus the Messiah who's the ultimate son who is in view, then elements of love and worship are involved on top of showing reverence and paying homage. And lastly, obedience will bring blessing. That is the promise that he ends off with. So if I come to our message this morning, the first point is a warning to believers. A warning to believers. Now, you might be thinking, Brother Louis, I thought this was a message about hope. Why are you starting out with, with a warning to God's people? Because the psalm says that God sees everything that happens. 
And if God sees everything, that means he sees everything. I want to read from Ezekiel, Ezekiel 8, verses 7 to 12. In a vision, God brings Ezekiel to the temple, to the house of worship. And he says this, Then he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. So he said to me, Son of man, now dig in the wall. And when I had dug in the wall, there was a door. He said to me, Enter and notice the wicked abominations that they do there. So I went in and saw every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall all around. There stood before them seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst stood Yazaniah the son of Shapham, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Then he, God, said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the chambers of his images? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. So when we as Christians, we often cry out for justice against people who are corrupt, against those who operate in secret uh, for their own benefit, or for those whose actions oppose God. We cry out for justice. But in the meantime, we are hypocrites ourselves, because we may have hidden sins. We have things that we do in secret. We have things that are so well hidden or have been going on for so long that we have actually convinced ourselves that God doesn't know what we are doing. God doesn't know what we are doing. So the warning for us as believers this morning is that if there's anything that you have done or that you are doing and you think that you are the only one who knows about it, God knows about it too. And in order for us to truly rejoice over Psalm 2, we need to confess our secret sins to God and walk away from them. Secondly, we've got a warning to unbelievers. Read from you from 2 Kings 6, verse 8 to 12. Then the king of, of Aram was fighting against Israel, and he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place will be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Take care not to pass through this place, for the Arameans are marching down there. The king of Israel sent word to that place of which the man of God spoke. He warned them and was on his guard there more than once. Now the mind of the king of Aram was troubled by this, so he called his servants and said to them, Will you not tell me who among us sides with the king of Israel? Then one of his servants said, no one, my lord, O king. Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So here God exposes the most secret plans of the king of Aram to Elisha, the prophet. There is nowhere to hide from God. There is nowhere to hide your plans from him. And so the morning, this morning, this is a warning to unbelievers. You who think that you plotted secret, you who think that you're doing things and you're making plans and that God will be caught unawares, God is already warning his people about that through his word. But what else is God's response to this rebellion? Well, we saw, firstly, mocking laughter. These men are preparing schemes to take over the world, 
to, to throw off the bonds that God has placed upon them. And God laughs at their efforts. So much for us human beings being these powerful and intimidating creatures. But it doesn't stop there. It says in verse 5 that he will speak to them in his wrath. Now many of us think of wrath, we think of an adult who's losing their temper with a child and saying, I'm telling you for the last time, stop doing that, it will be trouble. But that's not the way that God speaks in his wrath. He's not speaking out of anger, or just out of a build up anger and frustration. It's a righteous wrath. Listen to this in Revelation uh, chapter 6, verse 15 to 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the commanding officers and the strong and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and the, in the rocks of the mountains. They said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. Who is able to withstand it? Okay, that is how God speaks. That is the effect that it has when he speaks in his wrath. Verse 9 says that the Messiah will, will break these nations with a scepter of iron. He will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So this verse is uh, referenced three times in the book of Revelation. Twice it's uh, referring directly to Jesus, but once it's actually re uh, in reference to God's people. God says, if you um, stay true to me, if you endure, then you will, uh, I will give you a scepter of iron and you will rule the nations. Okay? So does it sound like God is intimidated by these people? Does God have to scramble and make up new plans because, oh no, human beings are doing something which, which I can't control? Does it sound like we need to be afraid or that we should lose hope? No. God will judge the wicked. Sinners will not escape his wrath. Jesus is coming back as the judge. Now, how do you feel this morning when you've, you thought you got away with something? You thought you did something in secret and you are caught out. Let me suggest to you, you feel angry. Why did you do this? Well, why did you go snooping around in my stuff to, you know, why did you expose me? Not sorry for doing something in secret, but you're immediately on the defensive. Isn't that true? So if you hear this morning and you hear that, that God is going to judge sinners and that makes you angry, on what side, on which side of the fence are you standing? But then we have hope for unbelievers. Verse 10 says, Now you kings, be wise. Be admonished, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Tremble with trepidation. Kiss the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath kindles in a flash. Blessed are all who seek refuge in him. So if you are an unbeliever this morning, then Psalm 2 has great news. Although you deserve destruction, although you are fighting on the side of the rebellious kings and nations, God is patient and merciful. And he is offering uh, the free offer of salvation and forgiveness to you this morning. You see, all believers were where you are this morning. Fighters in the army of the enemy rebels against God, but he saved us and he enlisted us in his army. He adopted us into his family. 
So this morning, if you are an unbeliever, please repent of your sin and worship Jesus Christ as Lord and King. Don't delay. Don't put it off. Accept this free offer of salvation today. Then finally, we come to hope for believers. You see, the exceedingly good news this morning is that the reign of Jesus Christ has already begun. Most of us are familiar with the, uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But we forget what Jesus says in the previous verse, in verse 18. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. It has been given to me. Not it will be given to me. It has. So who has all authority in heaven and earth? Jesus. So often as Christians, we don't live that way. I've, I came across this saying a little while ago. It goes like this. God's plan made a hopeful beginning, but man spoilt his chances by sinning. We trust that the story will end in great glory, but at present the other side's winning. Now let me get this straight. God himself took on human flesh. He came to die and rise again uh, to ransom a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. He came to defeat death, to give us new life. He filled us and empowered us with his Holy Spirit. And he said, go and make disciples of all nations. But the church is fighting a losing battle. The other side's winning. Now, are we experiencing the final and consummated rule of God on earth? No, not yet. Not yet. Jesus will ultimately return in glory. And he will put every enemy under his feet. He will renew and restore this earth. And he will establish his everlasting kingdom among us. But that does not mean that the enemy is currently winning. We take a historical example of World War II. When the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy on the 6th of June in 1944, which is known as D-Day today, everyone with any sense, including Hitler, could see that Germany wasn't going to win the war. They were now surrounded on both sides. They had the enemies pressing in. The Allies were driving them back slowly but surely, and the outcome of the war was beyond doubt. Yet some of the most atrocious and bloodiest fighting took place at the Battle of the Bulge in December of 1944. The hopeless and defeated Germans threw everything that they had at the good guys, and many Allied soldiers lost their lives fighting against this defeated enemy. And Germany only formally surrendered uh, almost a year later, in May 7th, 1945. So, this morning, I want to tell you, my brothers and sisters, that the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ was D-Day for the devil and for his schemes. It is finished. For the devil, unlike Germany, there will be no surrender offered. He will be utterly crushed and will suffer eternal punishment for his rebellion against God. So we may be facing our own difficult times, our own battles against an increasingly desperate enemy. There may be casualties, there may be sacrifices that need to be made, even for the winning side. 
But our hope is not in some vague phrase like, well, you know, things tend to sort themselves out in the end. God is working deliberately. He has a plan, and you and I are part of that plan. But our hope must also not be in speculative events, such as the rapture. For so many people, their hope is that Jesus is going to come and take me out of here before things fall apart. Okay? If that is you this morning, then your focus is in the wrong place. Because we simply don't know when Jesus will come back. Our hope is not that we will escape our own uh, battle of the bulge, because we may or we may not. Our hope is that Jesus Christ is reigning over the world and will subject all the earth to his rule. And we are on his side. We have won, even if we have to give our lives for his sake. Therefore, we can trust him, even when things look bleak, when we suffer, when we hurt. Verse 12 says, Blessed are all who seek refuge in him. You see, people may get away with evil in this life. They may get off scot-free. Christians will suffer uh, injustice and persecution. But God sees all of that. And you know what? It makes him angry. And no one will escape his righteous um, and uh, so his righteous judgment in eternity. They might get away with it here and now on earth, but in eternity, no one will get away with evil and injustice. You see, Hitler could commit suicide before the Allies could catch him and hold him accountable, but it could not save him from standing in front of the Lord of heaven and earth. So in conclusion this morning, we can have hope because God is active and he is involved in the affairs of man. He did not create us and leave us to our own devices or tell us, okay, well, I've done everything I can do, now it's up to you. He still makes the free offer of salvation and forgiveness to those who are fighting on the side of the enemy. We as Christians will still suffer heartache. We will still suffer loss. We will experience hardship. But we can take a comfort in the fact that God has a purpose that he is accomplishing in this world. And one day, his son will rule the world in a way that it was meant to be ruled from the beginning. We have such great promises from God, such that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And one day, we, his children, will rule with him. Blessed are all who seek refuge in him. Amen. Our Father, we thank you this morning that we can have confidence, that we can have hope in the fact that all authority belongs to your Son, Jesus Christ, that it is finished, no matter how bleak the events in this world become. Lord, may we continue to sing your praises, to preach the gospel with boldness and to make disciples. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to you, O God, who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.